We've outlined the book of Deuteronomy broadly. The first 11 chapters, really the first four chapters were kind of an introduction, a thematic introduction. Uh, prologue, if you like, to the book. And then chapters 5 through 11 were general principles for the second law, which is what Deuteronomy means, a second time Moses gave it to the people, right before they go into the promised land. And he gave general principles, right? You only serve one God, you're not going to serve any idols, and so on. Chapter 12 through 26 are specific instructions. It's a lot of detailed laws that would have functioned not just as ceremonies, but actual laws, which we will see tonight. And uh, it's difficult to organize these in a, in a great way when you're preaching. Uh, but it seems that the ones for these three chapters all address matters of life and death. And also, they all pertain to what are usually, typically, masculine pursuits. So the way I've chosen to organize these chapters tonight is, I believe they can all fall under the, a description of the man's role as a protector, and we're going to break these up into three different domains of a man's life. The public domain, the domain of warfare, and that of the family. And of course, there are other applications possible too. But as you see, I think you'll understand why I'm going to describe it this way. Now, when we talk about things like revenge, when we talk about things like war, I mean, it's important that we address what does the Bible have to say about what a man is? Or, or what does the Bible have to say about what masculinity is and femininity so we're going to break that down a little bit and look at some very specific examples for us. I hope it's real practical for you. And if you're a woman here and you think, well, this isn't going to apply to me. Well, you have a dad, I would assume. You have or would like a husband. You have sons. You interact with men on a daily basis. It's important to know, especially if you're raising kids, especially if you're raising daughters, because she needs to know what kind of man she ought to be looking for and what kind of man to be running away from. And the Bible teaches us those things. So uh, we're going to look at what what this is in these categories here. And the title tonight, if you've ever done any classical study, you know, Greece, Rome, that sort of thing, you hear an awful lot about what they call the heroic virtues. You know, things like courage, right? Things like honor for the gods, things like magnanimity and victory. And there are many people, especially those that write about manhood and, and all that, who say that we should be looking back to the Greeks and the Romans because that's when men were men. And that's when they believed in, in real masculine virtue, not like today where, you know, they just say, be nice and sit still and wear skinny jeans. Well, the, th the thing is, the Bible has its own heroic virtues. And they're in there quite a bit. And we need to know what they are. Because in a day like today where everything is so backwards, especially backwards on issues like masculinity, violence, family, justice, God's word is the light that we need. Because these are all topics that are in the air, they're online, they're being spoken about with all kinds of opinion, but we need God's authority. And as we get to the end here, there's a remarkable prophecy of Jesus, who is our hero with a capital H, wouldn't you say? Our ultimate example. So let's begin with chapter 19, verses 1 through 13. Heroic virtue is the title. Verse 1. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. Pause. Those three sections ended up becoming Galilee, Samaria, and Judah. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. 
If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past, as when, for example, someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. He may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die, since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as you sworn to your fathers, and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and walking ever in his ways, then, if the Lord adds to your territory, you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, and attacks him, and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there, and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, so that it may be well with you. And we'll stop there first. Talking about the cities of refuge, we talked about these in great detail in Numbers chapter 35. If you'd like to go on the website and listen to the study, you can, or on, online, YouTube. And what was the purpose of the city of refuge? That if somebody committed manslaughter, not murder, right, an accident happened, they could flee to the city of refuge where they would be protected from the posse that rides out to take care of you. From the avenger of blood, the goel, actually. It's the same word for redeemer that you talk about in the book of Ruth. What is the purpose of the city of refuge? Without getting all of it again, God wants his nation to slow down and get it right. Yes, if somebody killed somebody, they deserve to die. However, if they didn't do it on purpose and there was no malice, there was no crime here, just an accident, I want you to not hastily shed blood. It was a family member's responsibility to avenge the death. And we talked about this some last time, that the Lord expected the people that were involved in the crime to give out the punishment. That if you were going to be an accuser and take somebody to court, for example, you better be prepared to swing the sword yourself. And this is what was expected. And if you look at this, while we think about revenge as a categorical negative, because of a verse we're about to read, it's important to see this, that God understands the heartbroken man that wants to avenge his kinsman's blood. Imagine if your son was killed, or your father was killed, or your wife, for that matter. Right? You're going to be out for blood. And God gets that. Because if it was murder, then blood is what you are owed as that person's loved one. Although, if you look at the New Testament, revenge, even in the context we just described, which is totally fair and understandable, it is not God's ideal. And Christians are under a different dispensation where Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not just calling you all to the law. I'm calling you all to the law behind the law. The law of love. I know you're not committing adultery. I don't even want you looking with lust. I know you're not murdering, but I don't even want you hating people. I don't want you getting angry at your brother without a cause. Jesus takes us as deep as we can possibly go, which prompts Paul to write in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So I'm not advocating for revenge here. But I am saying that the Lord is understanding that we live in a fallen world. And he even made provision for those that are going to protect their family. 
Although he says, but we're going to make sure we get this right and we're not doing anything willy-nilly. Speaking of heroic virtue tonight, what can we draw from this? What does this teach us specifically about manhood, but also for all of us, I think, is an important lesson. Every man must have the capacity within himself to execute justice. A man must have the ability to protect his loved ones and to do the right thing without pity. Could you ever imagine that there's a place in the Bible where God commands somebody to be pitiless? Right here in verse 13. Your eye shall not pity him. And this just makes sense. We still say this today, don't we? We say, how are you going to let that guy go? He killed 10 people. How is this guy not immediately dragged out into the street and dealt with after everything he's done? Well, we want to have compassion. And people go, that just doesn't sit right. And the Lord's like, doesn't sit right with me either. So you kind of got the whole Batman rule, right? I know the Joker killed 5,000 people, but, you know, he means well. Let's just put him in jail and let him break out again. And that's kind of the, the joke that everybody has, right? You know, the real answer is because they need to make more comics and they can't just kill off all the bad guys. But the Lord says, hey, when somebody has sinned and somebody has committed a crime like this, as he said in Genesis 9, if a man sheds another man's blood, by another man's blood, by another man's hand shall his blood be shed. And God expects his men to have that within themselves to do what needs to be done. A man also must be able to set aside his own grief and love for his family in recognition of innocence. That means that a man is not to be hasty when dealing out justice. Is God hasty in his wrath? He's not. The Lord is slow to anger. That's why the Lord says, so if your son dies in the field, somebody swings the axe and the head comes off and kills your son, and you, get, you saddle up, man, and you're out to get him, and you get to the city of refuge, I know your blood's going to be boiling and you're going to be weeping and your clothes are torn and you've got a sword in your hand ready to go. I expect you to submit to the justice of the law of the city of refuge. And if it turns out that it was just an accident, I expect you to sheathe that sword and embrace that man. Can you see the, the balance of these here, things here? The Lord's like, if that man is guilty, he needs to be dealt with. Don't have this faux compassion. Well, everybody deserves a second chance. Well, that's God's prerogative. When it comes to matters of justice, the Lord says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Rather than insisting upon gratifying his own flesh. And this is what the other cultures would do. If a man killed your son accidentally, you might say, well, we can't kill him because he's, you know, he didn't really do it. But this guy really is, wants somebody else to die. So we'll take one of your slaves or one of your daughters and we'll kill that one. And God goes, uh, no, we're not doing that in my, my house. So what do we learn from this, guys? Gentlemen, also ladies here too, but I think especially for the men. Develop your strength so that you are able to do what needs to be done when your family is threatened, when your nation is threatened. You need to be able to act when the moment comes. Add to that a second lesson. Sharpen your discernment to be able to tell the difference of when strong action is needed and when compassion is called for. And also, number three, develop your moral courage to be able to act upon it when you know what the right thing is. Next section, verse 14. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Man, I could just preach on the importance of tradition just from that verse all night, but we're not gonna. Verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. 
If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. Again, slow down, take the time, get it right. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do his, to his brother. That's something to ponder. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. This is not contrary to Jesus' commands to love. He's talking about in the situation where justice is called for. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So once again, we've seen this too, the principle of multiple witnesses. One is not enough. Well, I saw him do it. Well, you might be lying. But if somebody else was there, you kind of get the sense of three would be better, or 300 would be better if you had them. But you have to establish that this was done. And in the days before, you know, cameras and, and all that, you relied upon testimony alone. This all comes back to Exodus 20:16 from the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, we apply that to lying, but specifically what that commandment is talking about is being in a courtroom and falsely accusing somebody. And look at what he says. Anyone who breaks that commandment, if you come to court and sue somebody or bring criminal charges against them, and the penalty is death, and you're lying, you would be executed. If you wanted his farm to be seized, and you were lying, your farm would be seized. If you wanted his eye to be dug out, eye for an eye, right? You would receive that punishment. Why? Because this was to be a deterrent against evil. False accusation has no place. That's what the devil does. The devil falsely accuses people. And you know, we had that... It's kind of dated now, but it's just a great example of this. A few years ago when the, the whole thing was in the news and they were saying, you've got to believe all women. And what it amounted to was believe every accuser. Bro, that is so unbiblical. Now, is there a time where we need to take the accusation seriously? Yes. But the Lord goes, two or three. And if you're lying, whatever you want to done to that person has to be done to you. Because God goes, there will be no injustice. And nobody games my legal system to put one over on their neighbor. Right? doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or whatever the case may be. We actually saw this happen in 1 Kings 21. Jezebel. This is Ahab and Jezebel, and they're quite a pair, those two. Where Ahab wants Naboth to sell him his vineyard. And Naboth says, no, man, this is my ancestral home. I love it. I'm not going to sell it. And it says, Ahab went home, got into bed, rolled against the wall, and wouldn't eat anything. <laughs> and Jezebel comes in. I'm sure it's just who he wanted to talk to. She goes, what is your problem? <laughs> well, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. And she goes, don't worry, sweet pea, I'll take care of this one. <laughs> and she hired false witnesses to say that Naboth had committed a capital crime, had him killed, and took his land. She also shamed her husband and goes, aren't you the king? Just take it. What's wrong with you Hebrews? Caiaphas did the same thing in Matthew 26. They couldn't get the witnesses to agree against Jesus, so they kept bringing in people until they got the verdict they wanted. It's not good. Talking about heroic virtue, right? earlier we talked about the ability to execute judgment, justice. And in the public sphere, a heroic man needs to despise liars, cheats, scoundrels, and slanderers. To have a disdain in your heart. To look down on your nose against somebody that you know to be a liar and a cheat and a thief. Because if the system, if a house is set up, 
So there's a bunch of holes in the wall. The rats are going to come in and infest it and make it unlivable. It's the same thing with a judicial system or a neighborhood or a family or a church. If people are just getting away with slander and lies, justice cannot function. So what do we do? We complain about it on Facebook. No. <laughs> it is up to society's men, especially, to put down such behaviors when it comes your way. To not allow this to happen in front of you. To not stand for something like that. To not vote for somebody that's going to allow that to continue. To not give your business or your funds to somebody that's going to be doing something like that. And if it happens in your own house under your authority, you put a stop to it at once. We've got to cultivate that disdain for lies and for cheating. If you've been to certain third world countries, you know everybody's going to try to lie to you. They're going to tell you a different price. They're going to tell you a different law. They're going to tell you, oh, you actually owe me $10,000 in order to get that when, you know, it's free according to the law. And you see these countries and what they'll tell you, the people that live there and love their country is, we can never move forward if we don't stop doing that. Because you can give us as much money as you want. You can set as many good laws as you want. But if everybody believes it's okay to lie to one another, this will never work. So it requires God's men and women to take a strong moral stand against that. To not be tolerant of crooked people. I won't work with him. Well, I need you to. He's a liar, he's a cheat, he's a thief. I will not be a part of that. Well, how do you know? You know good and well why. We've all had those conversations, haven't we? Especially you guys. Insist upon righteousness in your domain. If you're a boss, I don't care how skilled he is or how much money he brings in. If he's a liar and a thief, get rid of him. In your household, don't let your kids lie to you. You know, my wife and I, we don't have formal rules, but one of the things that always earns a whooping in my house is lies. I don't care if it's a lie about something stupid, because that will, and it's usually about something stupid, isn't it? It's like, did you just take one of those? You're not even mad. Did you take one? No. Lucky for us, most kids are terrible liars. They start crying for no reason. Did you take one? I'm, I'm not mad. I just want to know you take it. No, I didn't. Are you lying to me? No. Why are you so mad? Why are you yelling at me? Who's yelling? You're the one. Even in your marriage, you don't put up with that. You don't put up with lies. You don't put up with this. Because it has to start at the bottom and work its way up. If you're, especially if you're involved in some kind of official capacity, if you're, you're looking over money, if you're even in some sort of legislative role or executive role, you've got to not allow this to continue. Can you see how these two lessons come together? That you've got to absolutely get it right and ensure that there's not a lot of crookedness going on. But when you're sure, don't even hesitate. It's got to be done. That's the kind of heroic virtue the Lord is looking for. That's real justice. Get it right. Take your time until it's right. Chapter 20. Boy, here's a chapter. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt when you had no army and they had a big one. When you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. This chapter is all about war. And war is inevitable for every nation. And Israel was not excluded from this and this is what this chapter is going to be about. Moses calls the people to be unafraid of the other armies they're going to face, even against impossible odds. 
We all love those movies, right? Where there's just a, a, a hopeless charge where you see them staring you down and you're scared to death. We love seeing that, right? Well, the Lord loves that too. Don't be afraid. Because I'm with you. Send the priest out in front to encourage the people, to rally them. The guy that's going to go out and give the big speech needs to be the priest. Because they need to remember that it's the Lord that fights for them. Now, Israel was a unique case spiritually. right? They were God's chosen people. But what can we learn from this section? The Lord values courage. Courage. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 2, David is talking to Solomon. David's on his deathbed. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And what did he ask him to do after that? Actually to execute an awful lot of people. He says, this guy and Uncle Joab and your brother, these people, they're going to resist you. You're the rightful king. God has anointed you. If you don't put a violent stop to this, it's going to be war. It's going to be death. You've got to be a man and don't be afraid and step up and do it. You know how many times in the Bible it says, do not be afraid? 365. I like that stat. One for every day. In the face of danger, weakness and fear are fatal flaws, especially for men. For women as well, but less so, because God has called the husbands and the sons and the fathers to defend the home and to defend their bride and to go to war on her behalf. So for them, they, they, have, they find their strength in their husbands and their fathers. But for men, it's on you, dude. It's on you. And when I say weakness is a flaw, I don't mean like Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I'm saying the inability to do what you need to do is not a good thing. When you face something for the sake of the Lord and you don't have the strength to overcome, if you're being persecuted, if you're facing some kind of temptation and sin, if you're helpless, then yes, you're strong because you rely on the Lord. But God expects people, especially his men, to be able to act when the moment comes, not just to sit there and take it. What's happening right now? Guys, when you have people depending on you for their survival, you're the one that provides the food, you're the one that provides the house, you're the one that provides the shelter, and if you stop, it's not coming. You don't have the option to be afraid. And I'll say this too, because this is sort of the, the thing right now. And this trend will, will pass and it'll go on. Is everybody seems like they've got some sort of emotional disorder that they're dealing with. That they believe gives them an excuse to neglect their duty. I've seen this in my own life. Friends of ours, unfortunately multiple times, where dad's kind of a lazy guy, kind of a useless guy, worthless man, the Bible says. But he goes to the doctor, and the doctor gives him some kind of diagnosis, and now he feels fully justified in laying on the couch and doing drugs all day. It's not fair for you to ask me to go out and get a job, because I've got bloody bloody disease. But the Lord says, be strong and show yourself a man. Get up and do what you've got to do. I would never minimize somebody who struggles with mental health any more than I would minimize somebody that struggles with physical health. But I believe God can heal them both. And I also believe that when people are depending on you, you got to get up and go anyway. You must do this, gentlemen. Anxiety, depression, fear, poor health. I get all of that. But you still need to saddle up in the morning because them kids are still depending on you. That woman is still depending on you. We don't have the option to do that. God is with you. When you're going to stand up and do what God has called you to do, you shouldn't be afraid. 
You're staring down a bunch of bills. You're staring down a big diagnosis. You're staring down some terrible situation, the invasion of the country or a natural disaster. I don't know if I can do this. You've got to let the Holy Spirit come to you like this priest and say, don't be afraid. God's with you. And get up and get to work. It's also a lesson here about choosing your battles. Don't, don't try to claim God's help if you're fighting some battle he didn't tell you to fight. I'm going to get that Lamborghini and God is with me. <laughs> with food and clothing therewith are we to be content, right? The world has no monopoly on courage. Consider all the people that went before us, right? George Whitfield would preach in a tiny little pulpit about this big, except he stood on it. And people would like swing swords and try and cut him out of his pulpit. They'd throw dead cats at him. You read his biography, that comes up an awful lot. I don't know where they got all these dead cats, but he's like in his journal, two dead cats again today. <laughs> Courage, right? Men that just faced the sword and the cross and the burning flame for Jesus. Courage. Our own Lord, Jesus, laid down his life to defeat his foes. And he said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. And I have the authority to pick it back up again. And I love that. That's like the manliest verse in the Bible. Like, oh, so Jesus just got killed. Jesus is like, uh-huh. No. I let you do this. And then when I had been in the ground long enough, I came back to life again. Let's see you do that. <laughs> Verse 5. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. This refers to the official passing on of the covenant land to a new generation. You're getting a, a, finally getting a piece of the promised land. Verse 6. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Go home. Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. So he says, when you've mustered all the men together, this, you know, the draft is out and everybody's there. He says, you're going to send certain men home. Now, the shameful reason to abstain from battle was fear. Because if you're just sitting there, and you're going to run away, and you're going to make everybody else afraid, you're going to be sitting around the campfire talking about how you know you're just going to get it, and this is my day, and you're making everybody else afraid, just go home. Do you like that? The Lord didn't compel anybody to go to war. Just note about that. But most of these reasons were for people who are entering a new phase of joy in their life, a new house. You just built a new, you just closed, right? You just signed the papers, and you, your number gets called up, and you've got to go. He's like, go home. Go enjoy your house. Or you planted a vineyard, and you're about to get that first press of grapes, and you're going to get that first, those first barrels of wine that you'll be able to celebrate and rejoice with, and then your number gets called. I'm like, go home. Go enjoy what you've planted, what you've worked so hard for. You're about to get married. You're about to get married next week, or I'm engaged. We get married in three months, and your number gets called up. Go home. Go be with your bride. Isn't it what you love that the Lord does stuff like that? These were legitimate excuses in God's eyes. Not as, oh, I'm going to go find a new wife so that I don't have to go to battle. That, I'm sure, would have been frowned upon. But you know, the Lord is not just a killjoy. God loves it when you enjoy your life. Ecclesiastes 9.9, which is a, that's a bummer of a book, isn't it? Because this is cranky old man Solomon. This is no longer romantic Song of Songs Solomon, right? <laughs> this is cranky vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But even in this book, 
He says, let me tell you what is worth something. He's like, you know, chasing after money, no good. Chasing after girls, no good. Chasing after knowledge, no good. But here's what is good. And in chapter 9, verse 9, he says, enjoy life. You know that's in the Bible? Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. And that word for vain, it just means short. It means breath, fleeting, almost gone. Your vain life that God has given you under the sun. Because that's your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. What do we learn from this? Talking about heroic virtue. We just talked about courage, right? In this fear of warfare. What about this? Manhood is not just battle. You know, very often, and I love to get into this issue. It's one of the things I very deeply care about for my generation and for the cultural of the day. But, you know, it always comes back to, like, football, right? <laughs> always comes back to war. It always comes back to that. Right. And that's part of it. But it also includes more than that. It's not just the exuberance. It's also making a home. God goes, I want you to get married and have a house and have a little, little space that's your own, right? That's kind of the American dream, isn't it? To have your own house, your own fireplace, your own yard. That This is mine. It's just a little bit, but it's mine. This is the dream that came back from when the Lord's owned all the land. You come to America, there's plenty of land for you. So we, that's part of it. God's like, I want you to, to have some things for yourself. I want you to go out and make that house as great as you can. It involves making a profit, too. Looking at that vineyard, right? I want you to work hard, turn a profit, and get some great stuff out of it. And God saw it as such a shame for somebody to work hard, earn what they worked for, and then have to go away and maybe die in battle. He let him go home. So does that tell you how much God values the fruit of your labor? God goes, if you work hard for something, you deserve it. You deserve to enjoy that. So don't let anybody put a trip on you, by the way, when you work hard and you save some money and you go out and you buy a boat or you go to Disney World or something like that. Well, you, you know, there's some poor people that could have deserved that money. You know who said that in the Bible, don't you? <laughs> Judas. You can find him online all the time. Seriously, you know, picture, there's a sermon video on YouTube or something and people don't hear a word of the sermon. They just say, that pulpit looks mighty expensive. You know how much, how much money that, that could be given to people in Sri Lanka? And like, yeah, like you really care about that. You're just jealous. So making a home, making a profit. And also what the Lord says here is making love too. I want you to be with your wife and enjoy that. The Lord goes, you coming together with the bride of your youth, that rite of passage of manhood, of growing up, the Lord goes, I will not deprive you of that. Isn't that special? Hebrews says the marriage bed should remain undefiled. And this is a problem. You know, there, there's an overcorrection happening. The correction part is good, but there's always excess in there, right? Where there's a lot of people, especially in the church, reacting against the hyper-feminist whole, you know, men are stupid, men are evil thing, right? And what they're saying is, you don't need a woman to define you. Good so far. In fact, you don't need a woman at all. Okay, now we're starting to get messed up. Because what did God say in the garden? The only thing God said was not good. Man, to be alone. Making a bunch of money and having a big house is not all it takes to be a man. That's part of it. I just said that. But there's another part, which is committing yourself to one woman for the rest of your life and building a family with her. That is equally a part of the heroic virtues. You ever see that movie, Secondhand Lions? That, that's a movie for men, for sure. But it's about these old guys that were like warriors and won a bunch of treasure and stuff back in the day. And now they're living in Texas and nobody cares. And there's a scene where all these like punk teenagers try to beat him up and so they don't know who they're messing with and the old man like grabs the kid by the throat 
And he says, who do you think you are, old man? And he goes through this long list of all the stuff he's done in life, right? I fought on all these wars, and I won all this money. And then he goes, and loved only one woman. And it's like, yeah, I love that. It's like that, that you can feel how noble that is as compared to, you know, how many notches you've got in your belt. If your concept of masculinity is only conflict, then you're going to remain unformed. And ladies, that includes for the men that you're looking for also. Make sure that it's the kind of man who's not just going to look good, make money, have status, all the rest. Is he the kind of man you can build a life with? Because that's what men do. Verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. If it responds to you peaceably and opens to you, literally opening the gate to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. A siege is when you camp your army around the city. Nobody gets in. Nobody gets out. Let's see how long it takes for your food and water to run out. You shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save nothing alive that breathes but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. So this is a law concerning the siege. And this calls us to briefly, and I, I know I keep kicking it down the line, but we will, I promise. We were going to discuss this in great detail when we get to the book of Joshua. But we do need to discuss this issue of warfare more generally here. If Israel went to battle against a city outside the promised land, they were to first offer peace. Okay, like, don't just go in there guns blazing. Offer peace treaties to them first. If agreed, it said, then they would go under forced labor. This is what we would call a vassal. Okay, this is not so much we're going we're to empty the city and take them home as, as captives and slaves. It's like, this is now part of your empire, right? They're a, a, a satellite of you. They have to pay tribute to you. If you need them for war, if you need them for building projects like Solomon did with his temple and with his uh, palace, then they could be used for that. If not, they were to besiege it. And when the siege broke, they would put the men to death, and then they would plunder that city, and they would enslave the people. The only exception for this was a Canaanite city. He goes, all these people in the promised land, though, I, there's no question. We're not talking about this. They are under the harem. They're under the ban, as the word is. They're under the devotion to destruction. They don't get an offer of peace. Jericho gets no peace terms. I don't care if they run up a white flag in Jerusalem. Take the city. And later on, Joshua is going to get in trouble because the Gibeonites are going to trick him into doing exactly that. Now, it's difficult for us to read this passage because we read these things and we object morally to them. But here's what you have to understand. God did not. God did not object to this morally because God only does things that are good and right and moral. Yes? 
Okay. So if we disagree with what God has said, who's wrong? We are. Now, so all of a sudden, we're like, wait, 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 hold on a minute, though. What about this verse? What about that verse? What about this verse? What about this section here? The Bible, quite simply, accepts the fact that nations go to war. This is going to happen. That conquest is a part of life. That there are going to be people that are going to try to conquer you, and you occasionally will try to conquer somebody else. That people will be subjugated. That empires are going to exist. And in fact, nations only rise or fall when God is in it. Which means during the 20th century, the rise of the United States was equally of the Lord as was the rise of the Soviet Union. God was in both of them. One of them fell. God was in that too. This is why the, the apostles, the prophets will write to the other nations and say, don't you get cocky, Babylon, like you're special. God raised you up for a purpose. Don't think that you're just great because you're great. The Bible just deals with these realities of war. And we are living in a post-flower power generation where everybody's kind of swallowed, yes, war is terrible and we should never fight ever. It's quite simply not what the Bible says. Judges 3, verses 1 and 2. says, these are the nations that the Lord left in the promised land. Wait a minute. Why did God leave certain nations in the promised land? To test Israel by them. That is, to test all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. Why would God leave hostile nations surrounding the land of Israel to test the people that didn't fight in the first war? Verse 2 says, It was in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. God goes, I'm going to leave you some enemies so that your young men know how to fight. Apparently, God sees that as important enough to not complete the conquest of the promised land right away. You can't escape that war in the Bible is not only accepted, but there are times it is even celebrated. Psalm 18.34, the Lord trains my hand for war. We, in 21st century United States of America, we are the historical anomaly in that we don't believe there is ever an excuse for war. You say, there's no such thing as a just war. Well, you've got a few in the Bible. So the category exists, but we are so spoiled. And this is where I think that we, we need to just watch ourselves when we denounce certain things. If we are living in a time that is so blessed and so peaceful and so prosperous and we're surrounded by two allies and two oceans that we've never had to fight somebody invading our city, we've never experienced somebody riding through our town and setting our houses on fire, we should be careful before we start making bold moral pronouncements about what is and isn't right in matters of conflict and war. We have the luxury to do that. And we might not always, which is why the Lord gives us in that judge's passage, y'all need to be ready to go. This happened in the 20th century when all the nations, England and France, and they said, well, World War I was so bad, we're never going to do that again. Everybody destroy all of your guns. Well, one nation didn't. That was Nazi Germany. Oh, well, he, Hitler's a bad guy, but he would never start another war like that. I mean, it was so terrible. Well, he did. And they were caught unawares. And they almost lost. And they had to sit there and hole up in London while they were being bombed while, the Amer while America decided to join the war. Japan helped out with that a little bit. But it's important for us to know that. 
And we need to not speak in these broad, sweeping categories that we do not find in Scripture. War is the most extreme of all human interaction. It has the darkest depravities, but also has the highest demonstrations of valor and righteousness within it. And a man of God must be able to engage in it with honor. You can see here how the Lord is working to prevent cruelty. Atrocity has no place in a man of God's life. He doesn't even want them chopping down the trees. I heard somebody one time, pause here, do a, do a sermon from those two verses on climate change. I thought that was an interesting application of that passage. In any case, the Lord is saying, I'm not, I, I'm not sending you out to rape and pillage. But if you go to war, I'm with you. We are foolish when we try to squash that, uh, that aggressive, warlike aspect out of our children, especially our young men. When we do that, well, we, there's no need for that anymore. Haven't you heard that before? There's no need for men to be strong and have to fight anymore because those days are over. Say the rich people living in a, what amounts to a giant fortress with a two-ocean moat. We need that. You need to be able to call that out of your young men and show them how to live it out properly and in righteousness. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out. They shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of that city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that is not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord." It's interesting that they put this law here because the next section is all going to be about warfare also. Why is he telling us this law about an unsolved murder, right? Maybe you watched one of those TV shows. There's like a million of them of how did this guy actually, you know, die. Why is he giving us this law? To remind us, even in the midst of his instructions about war, that life is a precious thing not to be wasted. If a man was found murdered, the closest city was to kill a heifer, young cow, over running water, wash their hands, and swear that they were innocent before the priests. That could be the image that Pilate was trying to call up when he washed his hands on the day of the crucifixion. As we talk about execution and warfare, and as I've said, the Bible reminds us that there are times even for mortal justice to be executed, and warfare is often a necessary thing, and it can be done in righteousness. Even so, we must never become bloodthirsty. God is not. God is not a bloodthirsty God. He is patient, he is kind, he is full of love, even with all his strength. These are categories of death that are unique in God's eyes. When we talk about war, when we talk about justice being executed, as he said to Noah. But self-restraint is another heroic virtue here. A man has to be able to come home from the front lines and love his family. And can I say, by the way, 
just in passing, when we're going to send our young men off to war and they're going to come home and all they ever hear is people telling them about how they, all the terrible things they did and we should never have this and never do that and they're trying to wrestle with everything that they did and saw over there, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. We ought to be able to receive them home with the righteousness of God and say, well done, you did what you were supposed to do and thank you for going out and doing that when I didn't have to. We can help them that way. God's man, according to this passage here, talking about warfare and all of that, has to be capable of terrible, even violent things. And yet, be so meek that he's not quick to anger. And he's not careless with the innocent. That he has all of this in him that can be called up when it's needed, but he's not going to whip it out for his own selfish reasons. Verse 10. So we looked at you know, these heroic virtues in the realm of justice, public justice, in the realm of warfare now. Now we're going to talk about the family. And it starts with an interesting one here. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails. So apparently, long nails was part of the beauty standard of the day. Just an interesting cultural thing there. And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. When a man went to war and they were taking captives and he found a female captive that he desired and wanted to marry... He was required to wait a month. She was required to cut her hair and cut her nails and change out of the clothes, probably into sackcloth or ashes. Why? Probably because the Lord is going to go, I'm not going to let you make a decision based on your physical attraction only. I'm going to remove that from her so that you can slow down. Again, you see this? He was required to wait a month to give her time to grieve for her family and then either marry her or release her. Now we say this is so terrible. It's not. It was intended to provide rights and honor for these women. Because you know what usually happened in these sieges? The men would break down the gates, they would go in, and everything would either be killed or raped in the city. And the Lord goes, not in my land, not with my people. You go in and you see a woman and you're going to take captive, and you will love her so much, you're, you're so revved up, right, in the, in the heat of the moment, you are so emotionally and even sexually charged, you have to wait one month. You bring her home into your house. Right? She's not going to be, with the, be living out in the barn or something like that. She's going to be given time to grieve for her family because of what happened to her. And then when it's over, you have two choices. You can either marry her, do it legally, do it properly, take her into your house where she would be accorded all the rights of an Israelite woman that we've read already, or she gets to go free. You don't get to decide, I changed my mind. I don't want to marry you, so you've got to stay and work in the fields. God goes, you humiliated that woman by doing such a thing. So no, you don't get to. Now, we, of course, see that and go, what if she didn't want to marry him? All I can say is that marriage at this time, and in most of the world today, is much less romantic and much more practical. You, you married who your dad or your mom picked. You married in circumstances like this one. What changed that was chivalry in the Middle Ages when it became all about romantic and the feeling. And I prefer it that way, don't get me wrong here. In such a case, you can imagine all manner of contingencies here. But the point that we're getting at is he was required to show love to her. Now, you might think to yourself, well, why would he want to marry a woman that probably hates his guts? That's kind of the idea. 
Be like, do I really want to live with her? <laughs> do I want her to have my kids and be the mom of my children? I don't know if I want all that. I think I was just a little excited at the time. God goes, then let her go. If she, you know, if you want to, if you want to keep her in the house, and she, I would imagine, is, is warmed up to the idea herself, because where is she going to go, right? Her city's been destroyed. Her family's been killed. That's war. That's what happens. He goes, if you're going to take her home, take care of her the rest of her life, give her children, love her, put a roof over her head, then, yeah, you can do it that way. But you are not going to come raging into any city and violate some woman. This is the next heroic virtue here. A man must love his wife. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this is the classic thing, right? Apostle Paul would say, husbands, love your wives, and every wife see that she reverence or respect her husband. Men, we could, you know, give or take love. We'd like it, but you respect me first. It's the opposite with the ladies, gentlemen. She wants love. She wants tender affection from you. you say, well, I don't really, I don't, that doesn't really feel, you know, like something that I need. Well, Something she needs. And this is what the Lord has commanded us to do. And again, when you're talking about that overcorrection against feminism thing, you're seeing a lot of that, that real men are jerks. That's how you know a man really, really is a man. <clears throat> if he doesn't care what a woman says and cuts her down and yells, that's not good either, is it? Now, men are not to be weak or subservient to their wives, but they are to love their woman with great tenderness. Tenderness, gentlemen. Can that word be applied to you? Hopefully. And at least with your wife, with your children, obviously here, rape and abuse and insults and all sorts of things are totally off the table for a real godly man. Do I need to say that? Yeah, we kind of do. I hope you can see the completeness of a man's role here as a protector. He's got to be a fully formed individual, able to fight, even able to kill when needed, but also able to wait and also able to love if you don't have all of that, you still need to grow into it. To love your wife, gentlemen. Love her the way she needs to be loved. Not what's convenient for you. Verse 15. If a man has two wives. That's a weird situation right there. The one loved and the other unloved. I can think of a few biblical examples. And both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, think Reuben, son of Leah, here. Then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Another example of a less than ideal situation being mitigated by God's law. Because if you somehow end up with more than one wife, <laughs> which that's still illegal in this country, at least for now, praise the Lord for that. A polygamous man was not allowed to favor another child as his firstborn. This is what Jacob did in Genesis 48. Joseph was not the oldest. He was the oldest of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. You shouldn't have a favorite wife, just have the one, okay? Reuben should have gotten the blessing of the firstborn. He didn't get it. Joseph got it. That's why Manasseh and Ephraim were both counted as full tribes in the land of Israel, and Reuben was only counted as one. And then right here in the law, the Lord goes, don't do that. I don't care if that's your tradition. Don't do that. Polygamy in the Bible is never a good idea. I defy you to provide me an example of where it worked out for someone. And again, Christians, we're chasing God's ideal. That's why pastors in the New Testament... <clears throat> 
could be husbands of one wife. If we go to another culture where they have five different wives, that man is able to come to church with his wives. We're not going to send him, well, you've got to divorce all these women. No. But that guy can't be pastor. God wants somebody that is holding up God's ideal to be the one who leads. Here he's talking about loving your children. And we just talked about loving your wives. Ephesians 6.4, guys. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's so unfortunate and common for men, and women too, but I'm picking on the men today, for men to feel thwarted by their children. Don't you know what I could have been if it wasn't for you? These kids, I don't want kids. I've still got money to make. But you have a spiritual responsibility to your children. Your job, Father, is to provide for those children, both yeah, financially and materially, but also spiritually. Show them what a godly man looks like. Emotionally, too. Take care of your kids. You remember what it was like to be a young man? Walk through it with them. Even if you have no idea what to say, just be there. That's enough. We've talked about this on Father's Day a lot. Dad's superpower is being there. Just being in the home, even if it's not a good situation, will work out better for the children. However these kids have come about, whether it's through your least favorite wife, or even if it was a child out of wedlock or from a previous marriage, God goes, you do not get to pick favorites. You have a duty to your children, men, to love them and be fathers. That We need to add that to our aspiration of what a real man is, to be a father and a good one. Verse 18, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, somebody said amen, who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him. You ever take hold of your child? And bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Speaking of kids, we now refer to rebellious children who cannot be controlled at home. Can I just say for some of you parents that feel so terrible, there are some children that you just can't do nothing with. You did your best, and you tried your hardest, and before the Lord, you did everything you could, and the kid did not turn out the way you wanted him to. God gets that. God gets that. But specifically here, he's talking about excess. A child who is a glutton or a drunkard who can't say no. We've known people like this. The child could be killed for that. Now, here, don't think of like a five-year-old child. Think of like a 15-year-old young man or young lady who should know better. And it seems so extreme, but it's related to purging evil from the land. We have done the exact opposite and are in no position to cast dispersions because we've made a virtue out of rebellion. Defy authority. Listen to the children. Let them tell us what to do. Yeah, that's a great idea, isn't it? You get a bunch of people that are old now and are scared of being old, so they overcompensate by putting their kids in charge of things. Let them tell us what to do. I remember when I was young. Well, you're not. Now you're a mother. Step up. Now you're a father. Lead. And we're paying the price for it. Why don't these kids want to go get jobs? I don't know. Maybe because we never made them do anything their whole life. We told them they were the future and asked them to lead the way. And they led us right to this place that we are in now. We've got it all backwards. And it's up to the fathers of this country to step up and fix it. Restore tradition and wisdom. 
Remove frivolities. Don't let your kids run the show. There may even come a case where a father, we're not going to stone the children under the new covenant, but you might have to remove a child from the home. I've known families that had to happen. It broke the parent's heart. But it's like, I can't keep this kid around these kids. Because he should know better by now, and it's time for him to be gone, or her. Or to cut off a relationship. It's like, you know what? No, you're not coming to this house anymore. I'm, you're not coming over for Thanksgiving, because this is not working. Such cases exist, unfortunately. Dad, give your kids the discipline you wish you got. You owe them that much. And we finish the chapter here, verse 22 to the end. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. This is part of the reason hanging became the method of execution of choice for England and America and other countries like that. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So, here at the end, we look at this law of the curse of those who hanged on a tree. This is not necessarily that they hanged them by the neck until dead like we did for a long time. This was, they would be executed and then hanged from the tree, to, as an example to everybody. Sometimes they would impale them upon a stake. Why is there a curse here? Probably referring to the shame that comes along with it. It's not enough that you're dead. It's that everybody's looking at you. And the land was not to be defiled by unburied bodies, which is why in John 19.31, the Pharisees wanted Jesus off the cross. But we think of that, the great curse that is upon all the world, forget that of being on a tree, is that of sin. And we're all under it. This is why we need men who can fight and love. Why we have to mitigate things like rape and rebellion. We look at these things, why do you even need that law? Because the heart of man is corrupt and deceitful and wicked. And the wages of sin is death, according to Romans and that's a curse that no one can escape from, no matter how good a man you are. We need a hero. Well, hallelujah for us. Because the Son of the Father, Jesus Christ himself, came down to earth, took the curse upon his own shoulders, hung upon a tree that he might deliver all of us from the sins that we've, we've faced. Destroying every foe in the process. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Y'all, Jesus has paid the price. He's broken the curse. He took it upon himself and then rose from the dead to show that it had been broken. So guys, read these lessons about how we are to live. Come to Jesus. Rally to his banner. Submit yourself to him. Renounce your old ways and there's salvation there for you. And then he sends us out as agents of his kingdom to spread the good news, to shine his light, to fill the world not just with the gospel but with good men living out the gospel all around the world and women and children too. Men in Christ are to be the greatest men in public, war, and the family, having learned the heroic virtues of strength and justice but also mercy and love and self-sacrifice. Let's leave behind the corruption and the confusion today and return to the everlasting truth of God.